Well, welcome. Everyone does seem to be saying welcome to Bradford today, and it's a particular welcome for me because I used to live about a mile up the road in a wonderful house called, called Beulah House, and Beulah in the Hebrew, I'm told, means heaven. It also means marriage, and that's actually what happened to me as I met a wonderful Scottish girl called Susanna, who is somewhere here. There she is, up in the balcony, with our 10-week-old son, James, and she dragged me up the road to Scotland, not in that order. Okay, so we went to Scotland first, and then James is here on his first holiday, and I'm going to be able to say to him in 10 years, son, you know, do you know where you went for your first holiday? They go, where, Dad? You know, Barbados, Borneo, Bradford, you know, and it... I'm just, I'm loving being back. I was driving down the A65 yesterday afternoon and Susanna was saying, you're getting quite homesick, aren't you? And I, I, it's a wonderful city which used to be so wealthy, has so many problems and yet just has these amazing sort of small pockets of these amazing churches like Bishop David was describing and also larger churches like this. So thank you so much to um, Abundant Life for hosting us today. Um, I just want to say it's a great venue and great people and I'm going to pick up on that in a sec but I've got a, a picture behind me of New Mill. Perhaps one of the archetypal Bradford Mills down in Saltaire. Um, but it's also the headquarters of Bradford District Care Trust. And it's great to have Liz and, and her team. So I would encourage you to have a look at their stand and all the work they're trying to do. Because 90% of the goals are the same in a lot of this. And also thank you so much to the Bishop and the Diocese of Bradford for um, wanting to come along and, and, and be part of today. Just a word about the story of mind and soul. That's what I want to do in the keynote, is take you through the story. And it was in this very room in the summer of 2005 that it really began to bite for me. I'd I'd come from five years of leadership in another church and had decided to come here really for a period of rest and recuperation. And there was a great temptation to default to type, to get involved. I could have started leading a a small group or, or maybe sort of start mentoring people like I'd done in the previous church. And I did do bits and bobs of that, but Actually, fundamentally, it was a space for me just to be. I was refreshed and I was encouraged. And in actual fact, I wasn't asked to do anything for the first year or so, which was fantastic from that point of view. I was just welcomed, a couple of skills used here and there, and just allowed to recover. And it was a strange period for me because I still do love the local church and everything that it stands for, but I wasn't hugely involved. In the other half of my life, I was just about to accept a job as a consultant psychiatrist with Bradford District Care Trust, two of the local mental health care providers here. And clinically, working as a consultant is is the top rung in the NHS. I I could have stayed in that job until I retired and probably got very staid and and quite long in the tooth. But for all my training, for the sort of 10 years of apprenticeship and the five years of medical school, I wanted to learn more about what it meant to be a psychiatrist. And most importantly, I wanted to join these two halves of my life together. And again, the trigger seemed to be at the start of 2006, again in this very room, where there sermon was from the book of Habakkuk and Habakkuk might not be a typical sort of New Year's Sunday here's the start of the year sermon but what Paul the pastor here was saying was the opening words from Habakkuk it's this it says how long O Lord must I call for help but you do not listen or you cry out violence but you do not save and he went on to explain that Habakkuk had a beef, he had a complaint with God about some of the social injustices in the land and how come that the bad guys were getting away with it and the good guys seemed to be downtrodden the whole time. And we were encouraged to consider what was it that made us righteously angry? What was it that really got our goat and made us fire in our belly? 
And I knew that because I enjoyed my job, I could do it for a while. But the thing that was going to see me through in the long term was going to be the fire in my belly that would give my work passion and direction. And that really was beginning when everything began to click for me. And I think I began to understand for the first time why it was I got really angry when I see people with mental health problems getting a bad deal. Um, I was working with a medical student and he, he watched, I think, 40 casualty programs for a project. And every single time in these casualty programs, whenever anybody with a mental health problem was portrayed, it was either negatively or violently. And that used to get really angry because I hate stigma. I really do hate it. And God hates some stuff and I hate stigma. I also knew why I was the person that medical school voted most likely to become a psychiatrist. Yes, I was. It took me a little while to get there, but I, I was voted that because I refused to boil things down to a simple medical answer or one-line diagnosis. And I love the complexity of what I do in my work. I mean, we only really have, you know, sort of unhappy, um, psychotic is the technical word, um, or, or um, you know, perhaps bad or, or maybe impaired in intelligence. Those, that's really about it in psychiatry. So the complexity comes in the richness of people's lives and the different causes and how it makes sense for them. And why is it that this person has got ill with this problem at this point in their lives? And I, I love the work that I do in that. And I also knew that these parts of my life were going to frustrate me if I tried to keep them to part because I cannot deny the call that God has placed on my life to do medicine and not to work in the church. And I must not allow the NHS to try and do without the church. It can't hope to, it can't pretend to, and it can't afford to. And I think it's great we've got speakers from the NHS. And I'm just wondering, how many of you work for or who have worked in the NHS? A quick show of hands. Right, about half of you. Wonderful. I hope you get something that you can either resonate with or, or take back to your place of work. So Mind and Soul really is a story of the fusion of these two halves of my life. And the and is, is the most important word in the middle there. It's mind and soul. And many of us will have had a bit of training in our church, a bit of training about mental health. But let's bring the two together. Let's see how they fit together. And the story, the name of Mind and Soul, started about five years ago when I kept a blog and for those of you who are, are not into the internet, a blog is a sort of online diary. And I just began writing in this once a week, twice a week, about my thoughts. And it was a story and some themes of stigma and of fusion of these two things and also of hope that we might do something about it began to emerge. And it's also the story of the people who read the blog. People from all around the world. We used to have, I think I had three or four hundred people reading it on a regular basis and posting comments. And I was so encouraged by that and also constructively criticized. And that was so important to have good feedback on what I was saying. And then the story began to grow. Two old university friends who met, having not really seen each other for a few years, began to talk and realized that even though they had had very different journeys... They'd ended up in the same place with the same passion. So there was Rob, myself, who became a psychiatrist, and Will, who you're going to hear from next, who you might say he was a minister who became a pastor and really found himself in that. And then beyond that, it was the story of how we joined up with Jonathan Clark, who you met earlier, and the team from Premier Media Group. And we're going to hear Jonathan's story later on, but the resources of Premier Media have enabled us to organize conferences like this today and some of the things I'm going to mention at the end of my talk but it's not a new story. It's not a new story. So one of the things I began to do was have a look who'd taken this kind of walk, this kind of story before. And William Wilberforce is pictured here on your left. 
He'd been a member of parliament since he was 21. But on his conversion to Christianity about 10 or so years later, he seriously considered giving it all up and becoming a vicar. Now, personally, I think like me, he would have made a rubbish vicar. Because I'm not particularly pastoral. Okay, you do not actually want me as your counsellor. I'm great as your psychiatrist. And I'm great at management and the leadership and that sort of thing. But you probably don't want me as your counsellor or your vicar. But he was torn between this dilemma of the sacred versus the secular. Do I stick with this vicar or do I actually stick with how I'm passionate about working with slavery and if any of you have seen the film Amazing Grace that is really one of his stories there and am I going to take the natural or the supernatural am I going to take the cloth or am I going to stand behind the cabinet box and try and sort all of this out and it took a little old lady at a dinner party one of the so-called Clapham Saints who said to him Mr. Wilberforce I humbly suggest that you can do both And it is so exciting when that kind of creative fusion happens. If you've seen Amazing Grace, you know what happens next. But I'm so excited that I spend a day a fortnight, one session a week, funded by the NHS to develop the mind and soul resources. That is so exciting. And I'm immensely grateful to NHS Lothian for allowing me to do that. And I have time and creativity within my calendar to try and bring spirituality into the local healthcare setup. And the local healthcare trust here have got a spirituality committee, and I'm going to be working with Sri and Rashid and also Mel from Hull in the seminar this afternoon. So when you bring the two together, it's, it's so exciting. But it's not without opposition. It's not without opposition, partly from outside Christianity, from people who say, well, everything is rationalism and science, and that equals not God. Um, they need to work on their logic on that one. But there is this division that just because you have faith, you can't have science. But sometimes there's also opposition within the church. And I think we're going to be saying some controversial things that I guess to a certain extent I'm preaching to the converted here today, but not everybody, I guess. And certainly when you perhaps go back to your churches or your your networks and begin saying some of these things, you may get some opposition because we can be very dismissive, as the bishop was saying, of people who are mentally ill in our churches saying things like they haven't got enough faith or they're not fit for ministry. I mean, it sounds like that guy was totally fit for ministry, despite the fact that there were some areas in his life where he needed help. And I've just put a picture up here of Jesus healing a man rather commonly and rather awfully called the Gerasene demoniac, otherwise known as Legion in Mark chapter 5. Now he was naked, raving, and a self-harmer. That is not a good list to start off with. Yet my Lord choose to use him as an evangelist to the area of Decapolis, and it says there in Mark 5, all the people were amazed. All the people were amazed at this man. And as for me, I'm following Jesus. And I love it when things go full cycle, when people get into ministry. We're going to be hearing from Mike Bush later on. He got into this because he lost his father to suicide and had a nervous breakdown. And now he's teaching nationally on suicide. Isn't that fantastic? That is new life from death. That is Christianity. And I love it when that happens. Now, The church, as I say, can be dismissive of mental health services. And I just want to run through, he said, turning his paper over too quickly, three things of things that I think we cannot afford to do without. And, you know, we want to bring in God sometimes, and we want to bring in faith and say we can sort out all of the problems in the health services. But I just want to give you three examples of why I think it's really important not to chuck the baby out with the bathwater. The first is about medication. I'm I'm doing a seminar later on Christianity and antidepressants. Uh, Just a word about medication. There is absolutely no doubt in my mind that the invention of psychiatric medication in the 1950s was the major thing that enabled us to close the asylums. Okay? 
The social imperative may have been there from Pinnell and Shaftesbury and others a hundred or so years before, but the thing that actually enabled us to still quiet minds was medication. There were people in there who were extremely psychotic, and that was help. People who were so depressed, and that was help, such that we didn't have to have, probably up at Linfield Mount, several thousand people at places like that, and also, I can't remember the name of the other place, out, out, Hyroids in Leeds and also out towards Bingley. Three large asylums in the area that we don't need to have anymore. And I think one of the main reasons is medication. Secondly, I think there's something amazing we can learn from the NHS about the social challenge it lays down. Now, you may think that you pay your taxes and it's about free and equal health care for all. That's not true. The NHS was not set up to bring free and equal health care for all. I'm just looking at Liz, who's our quality expert in the back there. But I think what she would say is that it is actually planned since its inception to preferentially target those who are stigmatised and dismissed often. It was always known that the rich would probably find their own health care. So the NHS is really there to work with the poor and the outcast and the lonely in our society. And I am proud to be part of an organisation that does that. And let's face it, sometimes puts the church to shame. Okay? So I'm proud to work for the NHS because that's its mission, is to bring equality. And in doing so, it has to positively discriminate. And I think that's really exciting. The third lesson I want to touch on is I think that the lessons that we've learned from psychology There's been a huge movement in psychology throughout this century, starting with Freud. And although we may disagree at times with its authors, its foundations, its goals, I think we've got a huge amount to learn from how psychologists bring about change in the human mind. Sometimes in churches, like, for example, if this was a Sunday service, okay, and I was preaching a sermon... I can preach louder, I can turn the volume up, but that's about it, really. And a lot of people might get it. A lot of people may rebel against it, that's fine. But I'm interested in that group who can't get it from the platform. They need help from perhaps some of the other structures in a church, like small groups or the chance to discuss it over a coffee. And then there's going to be a group who need counselling, psychological help of some kind, and then can get it. And I think we've got a lot to learn from psychology. We mustn't just turn the volume up and shout more loudly at people. And I just want to recommend Greta's seminar this afternoon on Christian counselling and her stand, because the Christian Association of Christian Counselors champion this. They really do champion this, and they want to be able to say, it's not just about turning up the volume, it's about good listening, good prayerful understanding, and increasingly teaching modern psychiatric skills such as cognitive behavioural therapy. But, 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 if we're going to throw the baby out with the bathwater, that's not where the story ends. Because psychiatry, sociology, psychology don't hold within themselves, I believe, the ultimate answers for mankind, even if they think they do. And to be sure, there is a vast amount of research on the fact that having a religious behaviour and being spiritual is good for your mental health. And I'd encourage you to come to the seminar this afternoon on spirituality in the NHS, where we're going to look at some of that research. And, but the question is, what happens if you get more specific than spirituality and religion? What happens if you mention Christianity? And most importantly, what happens if you mention the J word, which is Jesus? And I think many of us will have had the experience of being able to talk quite a lot about God or a higher power or the importance of being part of a community like a church. But when you start mentioning Christianity or Jesus, things get a little bit more dicey. Now, as a scientist, I'm going to put my hand up and say there is no good evidence that Christianity is better than the other religions. Okay? Christians die at about the same ages as other groups who drink and smoke at similarly healthy levels. 
So you all smoke, drink and smoke at similarly healthy levels, don't you? But there's no advantage to your Christianity in terms of lifespan or anything like that. But what's being measured in those studies is often the trappings of religion, things like church attendance, uh, participation in rituals, prayer. And it's not the healing relationship itself. So does Christianity, does that relationship with God, that relationship with Jesus bring anything to our mental health? And I've put a picture up here by an artist from Glasgow called Peter Housen. It's of the third step of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the first three steps, just to remind you of these, step one, we admitted that we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives had become unmanageable. Step two, we became to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And step three, we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understand him. I suppose the question here is, how do we understand God? And what effect does that have on our mental health? Now, over the years, Alcoholics Anonymous has been changed into a secular model, and it works to relatively good effect. It's as effective as other things, such as medication for alcohol dependency or psychological models like motivational interviewing. The 12-step program are good programs. But some people, like Teen Challenge, mainly in the States, and also to a certain extent in the UK, and people like St. John's Bowling, just down the road in Bradford, are beginning to re-Christianize the 12 Steps putting what we call the big fella back in. And because when it was originally written, it was Christian in its structure and and its methods. And I just want to read to you from the Alcoholics Anonymous book, which I brought along today. And I I found this a couple of weeks ago. I never read it before. And I thought, I must read this. There's a chapter in here called We Agnostics. And it deals with people who perhaps have got as far as the third step, are looking to the higher power, but say, but I'm an agnostic. I'm an atheist. I don't believe. Listen to what they have to say. And said, in the preceding chapters, you've learned something of the nature of alcoholism. And we hope that we've made clear the distinction between the alcoholic and the non-alcoholic. That's step one. I am an alcoholic. If, when you honestly want to and you find that you cannot quit entirely, or if when drinking you have little control over the amount you take, then you're probably an alcoholic. That's step two. Things are out of control. You cannot sort yourself out. If that be the case, you may be suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience will conquer. But to the one he feels he's an atheist or an agnostic, such an experience seems impossible. Yet to continue means disaster. To be doomed to an alcoholic death or to live on a spiritual basis are not easy alternatives to faith. And I think that sums it up actually really well. They are not easy alternatives to faith if you are not a person of faith. This is a brilliant chapter, actually, about how you encounter God. We have so much to learn from this in perhaps how we introduce God to people. Because the story reads on, they're quite clear that the introduction must happen. The chapter reads and ends with a conversion by any other name. It says this, it says, What is this story that's just been told? But a miracle of healing. Yet its elements are simple. Circumstances made him willing to believe. He humbly offered himself to his maker and then he knew. And likewise, God has restored us all to our right man, right minds. To this man, the revelation was sudden. In some of us, it grew more slowly. But he has come to us all who have honestly sought him. When we drew near to him, he disclosed himself to us. And what AA would say is, although you may start with God as you understand him, and at the starting point, that really can be anything. I think the book is very clear. 
And the groups across the world are quite clear. And the groups who are bringing Christianity back into the 12 steps are very clear that the better you understand him, the further the journey will go and the longer and the deeper and the more effective for change. Yet, we've got a fairly serious problem. This is called Alcoholics Anonymous. It's got a membership worldwide of several million people. Yet most of them are anonymous. Most of them are not in church. Most of them wish to remain anonymous alcoholics. And I I wonder why that is, because actually the 12 steps are no more and no less really than the gospel. Step one, if I just change a couple of words. Step one, we admitted that we were powerless over sin. And that our lives had become unmanageable. Step two, we came to believe a power greater than ourselves could free us from sin. And step three, we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him and so on. So why do we vilify people who have an alcohol problem so? When in actual fact, as the bishop was saying, we're all sinners. The twelfth step of AA is spread the word. I think it's called the Great Commission if you read the Bible. This is the same book and the same message by and large. And... A couple of cartoons behind me from a website called Asbo Jesus. Now, it's called Asbo Jesus because the guy who writes them said if Jesus was around today, he would have gotten himself an Asbo. <laughs> and what he does is he says a whole bunch of stuff that needs to be said but is dodgy. So what would you say to the person in the top cartoon? It says there, some days I really do believe that at least 90% of the dark matter which is missing from the universe has actually made its home inside my head. If somebody came up to you and said that, what would you say to them? I'd be your friend. Fancy a beer? You know, hey, you know, come around, meet the kids. Or would you think, mm, not quite sure how I would deal with that person? Or, or would you perhaps deal with them in the way in the bottom cartoon? This person who says, I'm scared. Someone gives them a verse. Perfect love casts out all fear. Perfect love casts out all fear. Perfect love casts out all fear. Perfect love. I'm still scared. Now, force-feeding Bible verses is not an answer to being scared. It may be true, but is it helpful? So we've got a problem there. And I think, as by Jesus, you'll find it on Google. I really recommend that. And just to sort of highlight the problem, let's have a look at this next graph. uh, Premier have got a panel of over 200 church leaders that occasionally they ask questions of. And we, we, we emailed them around some questions just before the last conference. And we said to them, did you feel there was a problem with stigma against mental health problems? And the first set of bars here is their answers from the church. 60% believe there was significant stigma. Now, I think the church has come a long way in overcoming barriers like rich and poor and people from different classes and black and white. But the divide between the mentally well and the mentally unwell, I think, is still there. And I'm hopeful that the 20% who didn't feel there was significant stigma are blessed to pass the churches where this is talked about, where this is discussed, where there is actually a healing community. And the next set of bars is what they perceive there to be in society. Stigma in the wider society, and it's an even more polarized picture. Almost all felt that there was significant stigma against mental health problems in society. And again, I hope this is true, that the churches are more friendly and more welcoming places than the rough and tumble of our inner cities. Because the world world is in a fairly serious mess when it comes to our emotions. This web shot is from a site called We Feel Fine. Again, you'll find it on Google. It draws on website postings and blog postings made over the past few years. And it's great fun. You can go and have a play about it. And you just click on these various different things. And you can choose to examine stuff written about Alaskan men aged 40 in 1997, for example. And you will see things written about them. I did look for people in Bradford on a sunny day. But 
No, I'm joking. I, I wasn't actually going to put any actual quotes up because some of the language is a little bit choice. But what you find is that the people are talking, and the good news is people are talking, but they're talking anonymously on the internet, yet with honesty. And what we're finding is people are depressed and defeated and in despair. And this has to be something that the church has to listen to, because Jesus said he did not come to save the healthy, because the healthy don't need a doctor. He said he came to find the sick and the outcast and the dying and the lonely and the lost, the people who are going to write on their blogs anything but we feel fine. Thank you very much. We asked the panel what might work. What should we be doing? And the good news is that um, they liked all of our eight options. We should work closely with the NHS. Um, we're writing a, a Christian course on mental well-being. I'll mention later. Christian counselling is good. Healing opportunities is good. Referring people to mental health services is good. Supporting mental health professionals is good. Prayer on mental well-being is good. And pastoral care on our churches and also on our streets, I'd say, is good as well. The bad news, the next slide, is that they all thought they were great. This is the number of people just comparing. Everyone thought these are really excellent things to do. Now, I take this as a license to recommend all of these things. I don't know if that's fair or just. One thing we'd like to do, if it's okay, is get you guys involved in some email-based research after this conference. Just send a couple of emails around, perhaps get some feedback from you initially, and then ask you some of these questions. I would love to get together a research panel of people who attend Minor Soul conferences to kind of really get data on where we're at in the church with this. Would you be up for that? Those of you who do email, brilliant, that'll be great. Because I want to make sure that we're scratching where people itch. And what I'm very clear about is that I've told you the story of three people so far, myself and Will and Jonathan, and we're the three directors of Mind and Soul. But it's not something that we can do on our own. It is not something we can do on our own. And I don't want to appear here today as arrogant, saying, thank you for coming to our conference. You know, aren't we doing a great job? Because actually, I know that most of you are doing a heck of a lot already. We had 500 people at a similar conference in London. There's several thousand people signed up to the website. Now, I'll talk a little bit about the work we are doing. And when you came in, you saw a movie highlighting the website and some areas that you might have a look at, like our podcast and some of the articles. We've got a great search function. You can get regular emails from us. But I want to highlight two things. The first is a six-week course that we're writing to introduce the whole area of emotional health. And if your church has ever run anything like the Alpha course or Christianity Explored or a Just Looking course, you can run the Mind and Soul course. It's very easy. Take six evenings. What we're looking for this year is 50 churches to pilot this. And you'll be given a training day. Um, you'll be given a DVD with all the talks on it. Now, you can do the talks yourself if you want to, or you can play the DVD, and also the manuals and the handbooks. So please come and talk to me afterwards if you're interested in the piloting the course in your church, or have a look on the website. And there's loads on there about it. It's a sort of course where the sort of person might say, okay, I've, I've done the Alpha course and I've become a Christian, but my head's still in a mess, and I want to know what Christianity's got to say about my stuff that I'm carrying, that I'm dealing with. The other area that I really want to try and promote in the second half of 2009 is some databases that we're going to build. And like I said, I know a lot of you are actually involved in various Christian mental health projects, counselling, but if you're anything like me, at times you probably feel a little bit like Elijah after having defeated the prophets of Baal, and he comes and he's in his valley, and he's by himself, and he's tired, and he's not eating, and he feels so alone. And that really, I think, is one of our main aims in having a conference like this, is to say, look, 
There's 700 of you in this room. Okay, that is a lot of people. And God said that to Elijah. He said, I have reserved 7,000 in Israel apart from you. You are not alone. So please be encouraged today. Please talk to people. Please browse the stands. Tell us what you're doing. Email in. We'd love to hear all of the stories because there's so much going on. But it's lost so quickly. The conference is over. You're back home. You're back in your project. You drop in. You're counseling. Thinking, Am I the only person doing this? And I've got a vision for three databases. One is going to contain over 7,000 Christians who counsel. The 7,000 are reserved, and I believe there are 7,000 roughly Christians who counsel in this country. We know of about 3,000 because they're registered with the Association of Christian Counselors, but there's a whole bunch of other people. Whenever I, I was speaking um, at a large student meeting a couple of months ago, and I said to them, okay, out of this meeting, anyone thinking about studying counseling at some point? And over half the audience put their hands up. Some would have been Christian counselling courses, some of them would have been secular courses, but I want to find the 7,000 Christians who are counselling in this country. I also want to find the 7,000 Christian mental health projects there are in this country. Now, I can name 10, 15 in Bradford, because I used to live here, drop-ins, counselling centres, detoxes, rehabs, befriending schemes, football teams. I can name 15, 20 in Bradford. I'm sure there's 50. I can definitely name the 15 leads because most of them are on network leads and I'd recommend their stand as well. A wonderful opportunity of how to network the really gritty, earthy stuff that's going on in a city. But I want to find that in every city. I want to be able to look at a map and say there are 7,000 Christian mental health projects in this country because I think that's something that might make the government sit up and take notice and say, wow, the church is doing something. It hasn't lost its saltiness. And the last thing I want to do is get together a database of 7,000 churches in this country who are labelling themselves. You can have a little badge or something to put on the website, but just label ourselves and say, we are a mental health friendly church. This means that if you come to our church with scars on your arms, you will not be laughed at or ridiculed. If you come to this church with a learned disability, you will not be put in a pew by yourself. I want to encourage churches to be saying, we are mental health friendly churches, and I believe that we can find 7,000 of them so that... The anonymous, the anonymous who want to believe, the anonymous can come in to churches. There are many, there are many who are anonymous who would like to join, and God knows we need the churches. So, 700 here today, that's 10 each from each department. Do you think you can manage that over the course of the next 12 months? Okay, that's all from me. Thank you very much.